You are listening to the Enormo cast. I think that Black Diamond has a marketing problem on their hands. Too many cam codes. The C4, the Z4, the C3, the X3, the C3PO, and the R2-D2. Oh, hey, Disney lawyers. We'll scratch those last two. But their problem is your gain, because the reason for all the gobbledygook is that Black Diamond refuses to stop innovating their cams. First, they introduced the ultralight C4s, and 30% lighter equals pounds across the full rack, folks, which means you don't have to think twice about that glazed energy ring you gobbled while standing in line at 7-Eleven at 4 a.m. on your Alpine start. Then, if multi-sets of ultralights is too rich for your blood, they made a wink and a nod to the cheap dirt bags and redesigned the original C4s 10% lighter. Then, after another espresso or 10, they sat down and combined the C3 and X4 into the better, badder Z4. Finally, sort of as a joke, I think, they burped out the number 7 and number 8 Camelot so the masochists could masochist even harder. Are you keeping up? Well, the only thing to really remember is that the climber engineers at BD can't stop, won't stop making their cams better. So the next time you're plugging gear anywhere, you're set up for yet another best day ever. So go to blackdiamondequipment.com and check out the best protection money can buy. And you know what? It wouldn't hurt you to place a nut once in a while either. Do you like compliments? Compliments are good, right? From the outright, straight-to-your-face statements of praise to the knowing look and slight chin-jut from your favorite bro at the gym, compliments can turn your frown upside down in an instant. And hands down, of all the gear I pedal on the Enormacast, the item that receives the most out-of-the-blue compliments are the splitter hats from PeterWGilroy.com. You know, the ones with the titanium plaques and badges. That's right, titanium on a hat. Peter started making these hats a few years ago and has kept the styles coming with designs inspired by the great mountain ranges of the world. So if you're one of those people with a head and who enjoys random praise from friends and strangers alike, go to PeterWGilroy.com and check out the splitter hats and all the wearable art that Peter creates. Even better, receive a discount and help out the Enormacast by entering Enormo at checkout. That's PeterWGilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. Sold that's, it out. that's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormous Cast. This is your host, Chris Gluce. It is March 2nd, 2021, about 10.45 p.m. here in 
Colorado, and this is episode 215 of the Enormacast, a conversation with Lauren Delaney Miller. Do you know who Lauren is? Few of you probably do, but this is a bit of a deep cut. Um, I kind of have been following Lauren since I found out that she was living up in the guide shack up at Colorado Mountain School, a habitation that uh, is very historical, actually. Been meaning to do a show just about that damn place, which maybe this could be the spark for that. But uh, but yeah, a bunch of guides living in a in a shack in Estes Park for years and years and years. And uh, I always kind of figured it was sort of the habitation for the unwashed gentlemen. But uh, when I found out this young intern was living there, that kind of put her on my radar. And I've been following her career since. And I finally just hit her up and asked her to come on the show. Because from a distance, I've sort of watched her go through a lot. Not really knowing her, but knowing the people she was hanging out with and uh, watching her media and, you know, just keeping track. And it's been a really interesting arc for a woman who you know, decided to start climbing based on a picture on the cover of a magazine and then just set out to meet that goal. And not much to talk about here in Colorado. It is springtime, which means everybody is excited to go out to the desert. Colorado's not quite in shape here up in the mountains, but uh, the desert's coming into vogue as it does this time of year, every year. Instagram is awash with desert photos, including my own, I believe. Which reminds me of the normal PSA of be gentle out there in the desert or anywhere you're climbing. Not just to the environment, but also to each other. It's spring break time, which means there's lots of crowded places. Whether it's the Utah desert or Las Vegas or parts of California or wherever you are around the world. Things are going to get hammered. We've got to be kind to each other. You don't have any more right to be there than anybody else. And remember, if the crowds are bugging you, the only proactive thing you can really do is go home, thereby reducing the crowd by one and relieving us of your poor attitude. Aha, I know that's hard. I have a terrible attitude sometimes when it's crowded, but that's really the truth. Ain't nothing to do about it. Everybody wants to be there just as bad as you do. So either get along with folks or leave and come back on another day when you think it might be less crowded. Um, And remember, Indian Creek is a roadside cliff. Just because it doesn't have cell service doesn't mean you're in the wilderness. There's a road right there. Okay, let's get to uh, let's get to Lauren. So, as I said before, came on my radar because of the guide shack, and that's where we start this interview. We kind of rolled into that conversation. There's a diversion towards uh, Alta. We could, we turn into a skiing podcast for a few minutes, only because. Um, not long after I, too, worked for the Colorado Mountain School, then I, too, ended up in Alta, Utah, just a few years later, also having not really skied, just like Lauren. So it was kind of a fun little parallel lives moment in the first part of the podcast where we just kind of yuck it up about some stories. Um, but then we get into some deeper stuff once Lauren gets to Yosemite and joins the SAR team and, and all that sort of thing. And I think the big lesson here, which is kind of the fun thing, is that this is, you know, the every person climbing podcast that people occasionally ask me for. In some ways, in some ways it is. Lauren's approach to climbing and uh, even her abilities, if if you want to believe her, uh, her own statements, um, you know, she's not some ridiculously hard climbing pro climber or anything like that. She loves it. She approaches it with soul and energy 
and she's done some rad things. But that's not really why she climbs. I think more than anything, she climbs for the community. And uh, I think that this woman is going to contribute a lot to our community as she uh, continues her career in climbing. I know she's a steward and bishop, and she's also writing a book, which I believe she just submitted the manuscript for, about women in climbing, which is going to be very exciting. And I, and, uh, I can't wait to see that book come out next year. Also embedded in this uh, story, in this interview, is one of the many pathways people wonder about when it comes to uh, how do I become a climber? How do I not just uh, dabble in it, but uh, devote my life to it and whether that's worth it? I think Lauren would say it was worth it at this point, but you can see where um, it might have uh, gone the other direction for her at various steps along the way. And the last thing I'll say is that uh, Lauren does seem to approach climbing, but also life with uh, a certain amount of zeal and joy that I think all of us could learn from, even in the hard times. I think she brings uh, just a great positivity. I just had a great time talking to her. So I hope you guys feel that as you listen to this interview and it gets you stoked. La Sportiva presents Storytime. There once was a little boy named Tommy Caldwell. One day, little Tommy decided he wanted to climb a really big wall, but he couldn't find any shoes to climb the big wall in. So he decided to build his own out of scotch tape, Fluffernutter and a used pair of hand jammies left behind by a couple of euros in Camp 4. When those didn't work, Tommy called the adults at Sportiva and asked them for help. Sportiva came up with the TC Pro, named after little Tommy himself. A shoe so good at big wall climbing that little TC grew up to climb the hardest, biggest big walls in the world in his TC Pros. Then he talked to his best friend, teeny tiny Alex H, into trying them, and Alex, well, he became a pretty good climber too. So if you want to be like TC or Tiny A, go to Sportiva.com or your favorite mountain shop and check out a pair of TC Pros, and maybe someday you'll grow up too. The end. What you're telling me is that it was okay for humans to live in it, but once they wanted to store some stuff in there, they, uh, they needed to renovate it a little bit. Oh, yeah, that's what I've heard. So I haven't been back. I haven't okay. seen it, but I know right. that no one's living in the shack anymore and that it's like this really nice storage space. But I can only imagine, you know, what it means that they felt it appropriate for like interns to live in and guides to live in, but not secure enough to store expensive equipment, which makes sense to me, right? Because the door, when I lived there, it was like a, it locked, but it was like the sort of thing that you'd have in your bathroom. It's not like a real sure. exterior door lock. But, like, the door didn't latch anyway, so, like, the knob wouldn't turn. The knob itself would be locked, but if you mm -hmm. just, like, like, you could still kick the door, and the whole door would open. <laughs> so it didn't well, really... it, it, let me tell you this part of that story, because I'm sure it's connected, is that one time we got back from guiding, and we came in, and, like, the door was basically laying in the shack, like, blown off its hinges, <laughs> and... And it had been like this old, um, like a storefront door that had glass in it, like more that you could see through the whole thing. And so it was all like the glass had been kind of cleaned up and, and the door was sort of laying there. And we went into the office and we're like, what the hell is going on? And so what had happened is that somebody up the road, you know how you can like drive straight out and up the hill mm -hmm. uh, into that neighborhood. So someone had taken a spare tire or taken their tire off of their car and like set it down and it had gotten rolling and it had rolled all the way down that hill and like hit the door going 
30 miles an hour, this, this car tire, right? Oh my God. And just like <laughs> blew the door through the building and like hit the other side of the building, like went through and hit like the other wall past, I don't know what it looked like when you were there, but that would have gone past the wood burning stove and just like blew up this shelf back there too. Like if someone had been standing there, it would have seriously injured them or maybe killed them. Cause I mean, a tire, <laughs> a car tire is a heavy object, like with it's the wheel thing. in it, not just the tire. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So probably the door that was there was like something we, I don't know, found somewhere else to put on there. I, I would imagine it was like the same door if it was in that kind of state. Cause we probably like, we're like, Oh, I saw a door like laying in a ditch somewhere. Why don't we go grab that and put that oh, on? Oh yeah. And perfect. It pro- yeah. It probably was like an interior door of some like, for like a kid's room. Oh yeah, absolutely. To, to lock his sister out or whatever. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, but at so least you had a wood burning stove. Oh I really? Lived, I spent a winter there, and I had like one little space heater because there is electricity. Mm-hmm. There's just no like right. systems for anything. But it's so cold in Estes Park in the winter. Like I kept yeah. all my food in the refrigerator to keep it warm. Like to warm, keep it from freezing. To keep it from freezing. Yeah. <laughs> Because I had heard that they had renovated it, but that but it sounds like they made it worse in some ways. I don't really know exactly what happened between when you were there and when I right. was there, and I don't really know a lot from that in between of who lived there the most. Sure. But like, it's mostly guides coming in and out who live right. down in the front range, come up the night before they've got to go up Long's Peak, crash, mm. get up at four o'clock in the morning, do their thing, and then they go back to their house right. down in the front range because they do way more guiding down there. They don't need to live in Estes, but I just lived in Estes and I did a summer and a winter and a summer all in the shack. Nice. And it was just, I mean, at the time it was like a palace to me, (laughs) but I mean, it was also the first place I ever lived by myself. And I didn't really realize that until I got there. Uh Like I got this job with CMS and I drove down from Montana where I'd been working for the winter and like a pull up late at night and Russell had told me, you know, there's a key under a rock and like, this is how you get into the shack. And like in this moment, I'm parked outside of it and I realize that like I've never probably even slept in a building by myself alone because like I lived in a dorm. I lived in a house with mm-hmm, roommates mm-hmm. like I'd been ski bumming, you know, we're fitting eight people into a house. And so now I'm kind of scared. So I like find this key under the rock. <laughs> I let myself in. I turn the lights on and like I'm tiptoeing from room to room because I'm kind of creeped out. You know, it's super windy, so everything's kind of creaky. And like I turn the lights on, it's fine. Like there's no murderers in that room. And like I go to the one room, the first bedroom, turn the light on, fine, no murderers. And I like go to the back room and turn the light on and just lose my mind because there's a pair of boots with legs sticking out from under one of the beds. (laughs) And I'm like screaming because it's like boots legs sticking out from under one of the beds like each of these rooms has like two sets of bunk beds and i like run out and go back into my car and like sit there and try to think about like what i'm supposed to do because there's like a dead body under the bed and like eventually i just kind of there's like no one for me to call you know and so i just go back inside with a flashlight and like look under that bed and realize that it's like a dummy that they (laughs) <laughs> used for practicing avalanche um, burial retrievals. <laughs> and, like, I don't know if someone put it there to scare that's... me or if, like, that's just where it got left. But, like, that was, like, my first night in the shack, and I feel like kind of epitomizes, like, what it was like for me 
to live there. Like it's just kind of one thing after another. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's so awesome. Because, well, <laughs> did anyone ever say anything? Because if someone had put it there to scare you, they certainly would have come clean because it's a, I mean, that's like a brilliant gag. So did, if nobody ever no. said it, then it was just, it must've been just random. I mean, I, I can it believe just it. Random. That's like just the history of the place uh, that fits right into it. So yeah, that's pretty awesome. And then um, it's funny you said like living somewhere by yourself because it made me, I just recently tried to figure out, I was actually something like 36 or 37 before I actually lived somewhere alone. Yeah, it's kind of it, strange. It, in, a, in a house, like, because I just, it was always a, a situation where I had roommates. I mean, not that I hadn't spent a night by myself somewhere, but actually have a domicile that was all mine. Yeah. Um, although that, yeah, it sounds like maybe the shack wasn't all yours if people were just coming and going too. Well, people were coming and going yeah. frequently, but I'd say like 50% of that summer was just me there. And there were other people that were kind really? of working there, interning, guides coming and going. Yeah. But yeah, I just like didn't realize that I'd never done that until... I was there and I had to go into this little dark building all by myself. But. Well, that's all. I mean, aside from that first night, I, that must have been actually pretty sweet. I mean, a little place to yourself in the heart of Estes Park. Like, oh, I that, felt so lucky. Yeah. Like it's now, cool as hell, when you're actually. like, no, it's kind of a dump, but it was like my dump, you know, like yeah, yeah. I lived in the shack. And like I could go into the main CMS office building there, which is super cool, but of course also really creepy. Like that building is the original. Rocky Mountain National Park headquarters building. Right, right. And uh, it's just old, beautiful, like really interesting. But of course, like part of my job was to clean that building because they like rent out some bunk beds for their students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all of this stuff was stored in the basement. And it's like the most classic creepy basement, which has this whole walk-in safe with like this thing that turns and it's super creepy and like you know, a little light with the string that you pull it on and it clinks on and you're like, I am definitely, someone's going to close that door at the top of the staircase and I'll just be down here for the rest of my life. Like the moment you walk into the basement, your phone doesn't work anymore. And every time I'd go down there, it would be, I mean, I was like in my mid twenties, but I'd be like, and like run to the basement and like get the thing that I needed and like run back up the stairs. (laughs) God, I don't even remember a basement. Yeah. I mean, I, I worked... I worked there like at least I think like six seasons or seven seasons and lived in the shack for at least part of that and lived in the parking lot for part of that. I have no recollection of a basement. God, I must have known about the basement, though. But, yeah, I guess I was never called to go down into the basement. No, yeah. I wasn't lucky like you are. <laughs> no, yeah, super lucky. <laughs> Just like cleaning bathrooms and having to get creepy stuff out of the basement. Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, that, that's a real nice connection because I I, um, I spent a lot of time in Estes Park in the summertime, one winter maybe only. I was smart enough not to spend a lot of winter time there. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, the shack actually, I also felt when I lived there in the shack, pretty lucky too. I thought it was great. I mean, it's funny that like what your level of uh, of sort of comfort needs are at a certain point in your life where you know, just the fact that you had this place where you could put your stuff and come and go from as you please seemed like a really awesome thing, you know? Oh, yeah. And like working there, I worked at Kind Coffee the whole time, which is a really cool little Estes Park local business. And I could just ride my bike everywhere. Like mm-hmm. I could get to work so fast, you know, the shacks up on that hill. 
And like I could get all the way to kind coffee with hardly pedaling at all. And like I just had, I mean, Estes Park was so formative for me as a climber. And like that's where I really learned how to rock climb. And I really only moved there because someone on Mountain Project had said that it was a good place to learn how to climb so that you could go to Yosemite. (laughs) Which like I don't even know if that's totally true. And you're like, I guess they're both made of granite. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, because of that, I mean, it's it's like you have to learn how to slab climb. And obviously, Yosemite's steeper than Lumpy Ridge. But, I mean, the granite's the granite. And slab climbing, you know, you, you can't. It definitely makes more sense than, like, even Eldo comparatively, I oh, think. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, but also, I mean, when you're in the in the Estes, Eldo's in your backyard, too. So, um, and, and it's, you know, again, I, I was exactly the same way. I, those are the places I learned how to climb um, as well. And you know, there's a lot of gear climbing and not a lot of bolted climbing. I mean, there's more than when I was there, but there's still not a lot. So it's like you're dragging a rack around most of the time when you're climbing. Oh, yeah. I mean, Lumpy is just a... If you can climb 5'9 at Lumpy Ridge, like, you can probably climb 5'9 anywhere. Like, you're probably going to have to do some run-out slab climbing. You're probably going to have to do something wide or flaring or funky or, like, something that's just not super straightforward. So, yeah, I feel like it was super helpful to me. And, I mean, Lumpy, it gets a little overlooked because the park is right there. But, I just, I had so many fun summer days climbing in Lumpy. Yeah, totally. Yeah, me too. It's, it's, that's totally the case. And, and, uh, I mean, year after year going back there. It's funny, though, because I don't go up there very much anymore. And I remember, like, there was a long period where I wasn't there and I went back and I'd climbed a lot more in Yosemite and I'd climbed a lot more steep limestone and things like that. And I remember going up to the book uh, at Lumpy and just being astounded at how low angle it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like George's tree, you know, that. Route? Oh yeah. <laughs> Dude, I, I, was, I just so like, hard on that. My first year in Estes park. No, it's just heinous. That thing's heinous. Meltdown. Yeah. <laughs> I broke, I brought that up for a reason. Not that I knew that that had happened, but, but certainly it, it, it's a, like this weird, like the gear is terrible and it looks like you should just be able to stand up and like walk right. a bit. Yeah, it's so weird. But yeah, I remember looking at that thing like, holy cow, that's low angle. Like what <laughs> where oh, am yeah. I? And then the uh and then the goddamn OA, right? The um at least what we called the OA, the o- Osiris. Oh yeah. Um yeah, yeah. The we called always called it the Osiris Adventure. Um Oh yeah, super adventure. It's shortened to OA, which is uh, a five, seven, five, four, five pitches, right? And uh, like you literally, you could watch your fellow guy like drag their clients back into the parking lot, like bleeding and scabbed up. And you just like look at them and you'd be like, OA? And they'd be like, yeah, OA. <laughs> well, my first epic there was on the J crack. Oh, yeah, that thing's. I the was traverse. in my first ever player of Mythos, <laughs> and they're so blown out that my actual big toe is on the rocks. Like, it's sticking <laughs> all the way out of my shoes. So, like, every little jam, my skin <laughs> is, like, trying, is, like, rubbing against the granite. And, of course, right, the, it's, like, this big arching J, and it's 5'9", until, but at some point you have to leave the crack yeah, and yeah. traverse out because it gets steeper and thinner, and then it's actually 5'11", but, like... When you're in the crack, it feels so much safer than actually traversing out. So we ended up just like aiding all the way through the 5.11 part because we definitely oh. like could not climb it. But like looking at the crack and like looking at the slab, you're like, I'm not going out there. 
Like, how yeah. bad could it be? Like, I climb 511 in the gym sometimes. And then just, like, <laughs> I mean, hours and hours. That was the first route I ever, like, tried to climb. Really? Uh, Lumpy Ridge, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's funny because I, I have a, I mean, early whipper story where I fell out at the end of that traverse. Oh, my God. And I slid down because it's very low angle. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I like, kind of, you know, turned back towards the crack because you're taking this sideway pendulum fall. And I like ran and slid my hand and I fully uh, put this huge like water blister across the entire bottom of my <gasps> palm just from it like me just like pushing it as hard <laughs> as I could against the rock as I fucking slid like 20 feet sideways and 20 feet down. Yeah, so <laughs> Jake crack. <laughs> yeah, it's a classic. Yeah. A must do. Yeah, awesome. That that's that's super cool because I mean, like I said, it's like we're just we lived parallel lives uh, quite a few years apart. So super cool. Um, yeah, and 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 one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, aside from that, actually, we, before the mics were on, I was just mentioning that your name came up with uh, some friends when I was talking about um, the shack with some friends that there, you know, that the shack stories go on and on. So I'm glad we brought that up because those are a couple good ones to add to the mix the the dead body under the yeah. <laughs> under the uh under the bed I'll go into the lore uh for sure but you know just looking at like kind of uh, who you are as a climber it's you know not easy to follow like your career um it's mostly like i guess social media that i've sort of noticed but yeah, i feel like you've done so much in kind of a short time and and not necessarily like i'm saying like you went and did like a billion climbs, although I'm sure you've done thousands of climbs, but there just seems like you got into so many different angles with climbing and so many different things in a pretty short period of time. So I, I, I think this sort of talk kind of does lend itself to the arc of like your career with, you know, stopping to talk at, at certain points about some of the things that you've gotten involved in, like being in Yosemite. And here you were at the, you know, the guide school in Estes Park and you know, coming down from Bozeman, I don't know what you were up to up there, but um, you certainly got around. And one thing that kind of belies that breadth of experience is like looking at you on your Instagram is like, you know, it looks to me as a 50 year old, like this kid that's just having a blast, like all the time. And, oh, totally. Yeah. And, and like the, the grin is like such this big part of your Instagram <laughs> feed. And it's, I mean, looking at you now, it's like, there it is also. And it's so infectious and so fun. Um, and yet, you know, I, I know that you've, you've dealt with some, some harder things as well in your climbing, you know, with something that you wrote for the climbing zine, which I'd like to touch on as well. So that's what sort of brings us to the table. It's just like a really, I don't know, it's kind of like this really exciting thing to see this young person, in my opinion, that just like kind of went for it and seemed to have this audacity um, so I kind of want to get to what that's all about. And it seems like maybe you started climbing in college. I did. Yeah, I went to the University of North Carolina and started climbing in the gym. I mean, it's pretty surprising to me looking back now, but like the the Chapel Hill campus has two climbing gyms. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a really big campus, but it has two separate climbing gyms. And then there's a town climbing gym. And then there's like a series of climbing gyms in the whole area. Even though there's very little classic rock climbing, you know, within an hour. Over an hour, you get right. some really, like, great local crags. Nothing you would 
traveled to North Carolina for, but if you uh, live uh, there, uh, like you uh, have a... Uh, don't get the North Carolinans on my ass. <laughs> There's great climbing to travel to in North Carolina, and it's in okay, the mountains. Okay, cool. And in right, central North Carolina, there's like a okay. great couple local crags. Okay, cool. Um, all right, all right. But I mostly, so I like saw a picture of Alex Honnold on national, the cover of National Geographic when I was in a doctor's office. And I was like, where's Yosemite? Like, I had no idea, you know, that people rock climbed. I didn't know. Like, I'm sure that I knew that people climbed mountains like Mount Everest or something. But, like, I don't think that I really knew that people rock mm-hmm. climbed because I don't think that I had ever seen rocks like that to, to even consider it. Like, I was not Where outdoorsy. Did, where'd you grow up? I lived in New Jersey right outside of New York City until my sophomore year of high school. And then I right. moved, like, pretty abruptly, like, halfway through high school. Okay. But, like, not outdoorsy. Like, in high school, my parents made me go camping. And I, like, was so mad <laughs> when, like, I decided that I was going to be pissed the whole trip. <laughs> right. Because I was like, how dare you make me go outside? Well, it's funny. My parents, I went, it was earlier than that. It was more like middle school. I, I went camp. And my parents, like, never to this day cease to remind me, like, what, how awful I was on that trip and how much I hated it. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think my parents <laughs> still are kind of trying somewhere. to put these pieces yeah. together. Right, right. But like, I just, I don't know, something about it just seemed so ridiculous that I was like, Mm -hmm. that seems like a thing that I should probably do. And so I, in that moment, was kind of like, I'll climb El Cap in five years. And like, I did not know how to belay. Like, I did not know how to tie into the rope. And I thought that seems like the ultimate of that sport. And like, I was just kind of on an academic path. And I thought, well, if I can't do that in five years, I should just go back to what I'm doing. (laughs) Right. Like, obviously, I won't be very good at it because I've never really been like an athlete. And I definitely did not think of it as like an athletic sort of thing until I started going to the gym and realized that like I could not. I mean, it took me a whole year in the gym to climb my first 5'8", like, but went on like an outdoor rec trip with my school, Pallet Mountain State Park, which is this great local crag that I was talking about. And just, I don't know, it's so strange to me that that is what clicked with me. Like, I'd never really camped. I'd never really gone hiking. I'd never really done anything like that. But something about it just seemed so awesome. And then I just started... No, wait, 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 wait. Let me, let me back up. So this is the cover of, of Alex Dan doing the famous... Yeah, thank God. Standing ledge. backwards, honolding. Mm-hmm. Honol- this is the honolding it. moment. Right, right. So, Which is kind of funny, right? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I was like, that was the moment. And I was like, that just seems totally ridiculous. I should probably do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and but i'm gonna use ropes i know yeah, they use ropes. ropes normally right okay and it, i think it was just like my complete lack of understanding of the sport that actually really helped drive me towards mm-hmm. goals that were way too big for me and i like definitely had you know a classic stream of close calls in like my first couple of years but for me it was just so goal oriented like i'm gonna climb El cap because that seems like the ultimate in this sport and like, mm-hmm. I didn't know how to tread climb. I didn't know how to lead ballet. Like, I didn't know how to do anything. But I set this kind of ridiculous time frame just because I felt like, well, that's what sounds like to me, like giving it like a good try, <laughs> this like mm-hmm. new sport thing. Sure. And if I can't do it in that amount of time, then like I should probably just be doing something else. Got into climbing because I started reading more and more about it. Like I read everything that you could find about climbing at the library in Chapel Hill, which is not that much. and. Everything that I read seemed to seem like it was all about Yosemite. And so that was kind of always my goal. Like I did a lot of 
traveling all around the West after that. But like every single thing I did was kind of like, okay, well, like first I'm going to learn how to lead climb and then I'm going to learn how to like, like I just never stopped at one level for too much because I felt like Mm -hmm. once I could kind of check the box, I could move on. And I feel like if anything that I wish that I'd done differently so far in my climbing career, it would be pausing a little bit more and enjoying where I was at at that moment a little bit more. But like a lot of the things I've done, I've been like just barely capable of pulling them off. Right. So that it's not like a an outrageous epic, but like I'm still just barely <laughs> doing things. But then it's really motivating because you're like, cool, check, next step. Like I was, you know, learning how to Jumar and fix lines and trees. Being like I went out to what's that little Estes Park crag? Is it like Mary's Lake or something like that? Mm-hmm. That sounds right. There's there's a crag at Mary's Lake. I mean, yeah, it's like the it's like a tiny little crag where you take kids to learn how to you know go top roping. But I'd like put up a fixed line and like be up there like gmaring and stuff. Like I'm going to Yosemite, and yeah, I kind All right, of. Well, hold hold on. Let 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 me back up here. We just <laughs> we just stream a consciousness right back to back to Estes Park, but. Let's go a little bit into who you were um, when you when you saw Honold on the cover of the magazine. So, I mean, what were you doing in college? Like, had, had there been, I mean, you're talking about this thing climbing with this like clear passion, or you know, at least this resolve. Anyway, was there something else in your life previous to that 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 you know was driving you to end up in college and 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 pushing yourself forward, or were you sort of uh, maybe looking for something like that? I think it's kind of both. Like I studied international relations with a concentration in African culture and art. Um, I had gotten really interested in some nonprofits in high school, actually, that kind of dealt with economic instability and educational programming. And I was really interested in working in uh, the nonprofit world and was really interested in this period of the Arab Spring was happening while I was in college. And I got really interested in politics and kind of definitely saw myself going I wasn't sure if it was going to be like a law school thing or a NGO type of path but I was really interested in that but I also think that after about two years of that I was starting to feel really burnt out I have two minors and I ended up graduating in three years because I think like I said I always want to just check the box and kind of go on to the next thing But I think doing that much that quickly, even though I was enjoying what I was doing, left me super burnt out. And so I think it's more that when I started climbing and I had a different outlet, I latched onto that instead. Um, Okay. Like I wanted to graduate early. I moved to Alaska five days after graduating. Um, It was really pendulum-y. I really knew what I wanted to do, got super burnt out, became like a full-fledged dirtbag in Alaska, doing zip line tours and taking people top roping within a really short period of time. Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. I had just, yeah, been, once I had realized, oh, I don't actually want to do that, climbing was the only other thing that I really liked doing. So I was like, right. it was easy at that point to be like all in. Okay. All right. So we are ga- we are sort of gathering data here on a personality <laughs> trait. <laughs> for sure <laughs> and this is not unusual i don't think the the um this type of personality like latching on to climbing and 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 going at it the way that you have in a sense so the uh, alaska you ended up like what finding some some job doing yeah so in alaska 
super <laughs> random, but like my college friend's this brother had just, moved uh, to Alaska yeah. and then he was a kayaker who got hooked up with this guiding company and he was like, I got these friends who climb and like they would be awesome to bring up here. So like we all went up there for the summer. This is in Skagway. This is like Southeast Alaska where they do a bunch of cruise ship uh, tours. Uh, and we yes, all just worked okay. as like cruise ship uh, tour guides doing zip lining and top roping and uh yeah going climbing in the rain all the time and i mean it was just like incredible yeah, yeah totally I mean, random <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like that's like uh i don't know you know when people make uh like you know you're supposed to you know climb in like tennis shoes first to have good footwork or something like that or like if you climb in your boots you know you'll learn how to use your feet before you uh before you get climbing shoes which i think is total horseshit but yeah. it happens out there in the guiding world it seems almost like the version of that like you want to be a rock climber well why don't you go to this place <laughs> where it's like probably like the the worst rock climbing you'll ever do in your life um, and, it rains and then every you'll day. just get better yeah. anyway, and it rains every day um mm -hmm. and then everything after that'll seem awesome to you <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> you'll never spend a sunny day in yosemite being like this sucks let's go get pizza you're like no no we're i using know what this. it's like when it sucks yeah <laughs> all right so uh, along this idea of the arc so you, you you do this thing which sounds bizarre and is probably filled with hilarious stories about zip lining with cruise ship people nevertheless let's move on <laughs> that could, um yeah there's a lot of stories there unrelated to rock climbing but right, right, funny bet. so what happens then i mean that like that's your kind of like you're now a dirt bag yeah now i'm a dirt bag but i realize that i don't know what to do in the winter <laughs> so like the summer right. is coming to a close and i'm kind of like oh no like what and i'm asking everyone that i work with like well, what do you do after this like, what's the next step? And they were like, well, we ski, of course. And I'd only ever known skiing as a thing that rich people could do. Because when you're in North Carolina, the only people you know that ski go on vacations to the West, you know, over Christmas break to go skiing. And so I was like, how can you afford that? And they were like, well, when you work there, you get to ski for free. And so they were like, you should come to Alta. It's a really good place to learn how to ski. So I was like, that sounds great. And I like bought a pair of boots. And I, my friend was like, you should buy these skis. And they were black diamond amperages. They're like 115 underfoot. And uh, picked them up from the ski shop and uh, like from the black diamond store in Salt Lake. And we like, like I flew in, took the bus up to Alta. Like I didn't have a car. And that was it. And I lived in the gold miner's daughter and worked at the front desk. And I'd never, never, not once put ski boots on. And I just skied every day. And... I don't know if in retrospect, I'd say that Alta is like a great beginner mountain, but uh, it turns out you could learn how to ski anywhere. And yeah, I just had a blast. Like the gold miner's daughter is another just like legendary place. You know, like the employees live mostly in the basement of the hotel. It snows a lot. I didn't even have a car. So like once a month, I'd take the ski bus down to Salt Lake, take the tracks, go to the library, get my books because I worked at the front desk. So I had a lot of time to read. And I mean, I just never seen anything like it. And then that's a whole other world, right? Like of interconnected ski bum world. Um, all right. All right. All right. Right. I've been holding <laughs> my tongue. I've been holding my tongue and I and no one can see me, but I just did a mind blow. <laughs> uh, because here's let me tell you something. You ever heard of a place called the Rustler? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, when I was guiding in Estes Park, I too was met with the dilemma of what do I do in the winter because I sure as hell don't want to stay here in Estes Park. And guess what? A friend of mine said, hey, I worked at the Rustler last summer <laughs> or last winter. You should come up here to the Rustler and get a job. And you know what I said? Well, man, I've never skied before. <laughs> and they said, why don't you come up here and you can learn how to ski? And you know what I did when I got there? I bought a crappy used pair of skis. And guess what I did? I learned how to ski at Alta because I didn't have anything else to do in the winter. Right. And there's no, I mean, what else could you possibly do up there? Like, just how awesome. are we living these parallel lives? I know. <laughs> there's, yeah, it's there's so funny because you're some telling the of... story. I'm just like, mm hmm. Yep. And uh huh. Right. And then you, yep. And then you just skied every day because that's what you did up there. And by the end of the season, guess what? You're probably a pretty good skier yeah all of a sudden you know how to ski it's crazy you ski 115 days in a winter and all of a exactly. sudden you're like not that bad i mean in the gold no, miners gotta you. be the coolest place i've worked like when i worked there right, there was right. a policy that you got ski time every day so you would never work like nine to five if the lifts ran mm -hmm. 9 30 to 4 30 like you'd work in the morning and get off by two or three so that at least you could get out or you'd work in the evening and like it's just yeah, so, I mean, I haven't been there in a while. I'm sure that things are a little bit different as they join up on all these kind of combo ski pass things, but, Right, man. right. As soon as you started talking about it, I know it was your experience was, like, the same as mine, even though it was, like, 20 years later or whatever, because, it like, the whole, that whole cycle up there in Alta or most ski areas, it doesn't, just doesn't change that much, no. you know? Yeah, it feels like yeah. this kind of like stream of existence that you can like dip in and out to, but it like never yeah. is any different. It's yeah, it's just people like there's these roles that everyone plays and just new people replace those roles, but the roles are the same. Oh, totally. You know, the de the bartender, it's like he's got a different name, but he's pretty much the same person. Yeah, totally. <laughs> as, the, as the dude tw from 20 years ago, yeah. you know. It's just kind of it's kind of wild like that. Did you sneak off to climb in little cottonwood or what? I did a little bit. Yeah, we climbed actually that spring, climbed some at the Devil's Gate. Is that what it's called? Hell's Gate? Something like that. There's this little crag right, really right, up there, that. really close, right across from Snowbird. And I yeah. remember climbing there a little bit, but I like I didn't have a car the winter right. I was there. I had had a car, I'd left it at my parents' house, and yeah, so I was super at the mercy of the people I worked with. There were a couple climbers there, so mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. when there were periods where it didn't snow for a while... I would try to tag along and go down to climb at the base of the canyon or go to the gym or something. But I pretty much was just pretty content to say, we're just going to go all in on this thing and just see what it's like. And there's not really any room to not like skiing <laughs> when you live in right. Alta. So. Right. Did you yeah. guys have a good year? Was it a good snow year? It was really good. I didn't yeah, know anything awesome. about it at the time, but I remember people apologizing to me that we hadn't hit the 100-inch base by Christmas. Right. And they're like, it's not really a very good year. <laughs> but it was still like a 550-inch year overall or something, right. especially like with the inner lodge thing <laughs> yeah, that the they've got lodge. going on. They're like, well, yeah. it actually snowed so much that you can't go outside by law because every building in Alta is in a natural avalanche path. And you're like, what? And then there's like, you work at the front desk and all these people are like, I have to get on my pissed. flight. And I'm like, super pissed. There's like a lock. Like part of my job at the front desk would be like, oh, they would call the front desk this like old phone at the time i mean this was not that long ago and it has like 10 by 10 with like all the different numbers that you could press for all the rooms in the hotel like gold miners yeah. this is lauren and they're like it's inner lodge no one can go out we'll let you know when it's lifted 
And then you just like walk up to the front door and like lock it with a key. And you're like, no one can go outside. <laughs> like so much so that we actually carry some sort of like nicotine gum at the front desk to give to people really? because they can't go outside they to smoke. And right. oh. uh, we don't want them smoking inside. So we give them free nicotine gum. I, I don't know if this is a practice anymore. Just yeah, just everybody calm, calm down. down. <laughs> but Come it's on, awesome. Everybody. Because then that's so it's so funny because I, I dated I actually dated a deskie yeah <laughs> um, and so I know all about this whole argument about you know people with a lot of money who are not used to not being able to do whatever the hell they want. The greatest thing about Interlodge, which is that then when it's lifted, you've got this magic window of time in which you're already at the mountain and everyone else has to drive up from the city, which takes like forty totally. minutes. So you have totally. like 40 minutes in which instead, I think that's why, you know, you see these pictures of people skiing in Alta and it looks like a ridiculous amount of snow because instead of snowing, like skiing like a 10 inch day and then another 10 inch day and then another 10 inch day, like you didn't get to go outside at all. So then when you finally get to go outside, there's like 30 inches of snow. And so yeah, totally. you and, get, and there's not enough people window. to ski it off. It's really, well, awesome. even the more, and this is like, we're on a, this is a, turned into a skiing podcast. So <laughs> <I know. laughs> the more special thing and that that also like that kind of thing i i realized years after that is never going to happen to me again unless i go back there which i'm not going to because there were there are like the downside of being stuck in altitude yeah i'm in a lodge <laughs> with all the same people for a hundred yeah. and how many days but nevertheless is the 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 absolute perfect storm is the, is when a, a slide would rip the road between alta mm-hmm. and snowbird yeah the superior would rip and now you're like, literally no one can show up. Like no one can get through there until the sh- until the loaders like pull the road open. And yeah, those days of like, we're just going to ski for a couple days by ourselves with just like lodge guests. And half the lodge guests were scared, like to go out into 30 inches of powder. Yeah. <laughs> like they believed the snorkel stories or like the stories right. of like, you know, like that you were going to go out there and suffocate. Right. Um, yeah. So it, it, an incredible place. All right. So you're skiing in Alta. You've been a zipline guide like when does like the climbing like fully kick in okay so then this like next summer is kind of like the low moment in which i'm like all right i really got to figure out what the priorities are here so i want to go rock climbing it's the end of ski season i realize i like skiing i like rock climbing more and the only place i like know anything about rock climbing or know anyone is in the new river gorge which is where i climbed mostly while i was in college once i kind of had started to figure it out and so I had a friend there. I moved out to Fayetteville. The climbing in the new is not that great in the summer. I couldn't find a job to save my life. Basically living at my friend's house for free because I didn't have any money. And he's like, well, just pay me when you make the money because you don't have a job yet. And I never got a job. And I had a friend from Alaska who lived in Breckenridge. And he's like, the resort's opening for the summer and I'm sure that you can get a job. And having been a zipline guide, I got a job on the zipline in Breck. And I moved out to Colorado. And this was kind of like my real big move. Like I got a car and I moved out there. And I was like, I'm not driving east ever again. I felt like I had finally actually moved to the west because all these other times I had like flown to these places. And then in between, I went to my parents' house in North Carolina. So now I really felt like I was doing it. But like Breckenridge itself does not have tons of climbing, though you have access to, you know, the climbing down in Boulder. So I was working up in the air, driving down to Boulder, and at the end of the season, I felt like, well, I really should probably just go to Boulder because there's a lot of rock climbing there. Then I got a job um, teaching kids at ABC, the kids' climbing gym in Boulder, 
which is one of the coolest jobs that I've ever had. Super flexible, super fun, really cool people work there. But I couldn't afford to live in Boulder. So I had this like Ford Explorer that I called the Exploder because it was breaking. I mean, it didn't have a working battery. Like you had to jump it anytime you wanted to go anywhere. But Boulder's very walkable. So I just parked it behind the climbing gym and just slept in it and then would walk everywhere. <laughs> so I didn't have to buy a new battery. And uh, that was kind of the first time where I was on the cusp between dirtbagging and, like, actual kind of homelessness. <laughs> like, I definitely would have lived inside if that had been one of my options at the time, you know? Right, right. Sometimes I felt like, wow, I am living the dream. And other times I was just like, this kind of sucks. <clears throat> like, I would much prefer to live inside. And then it just seemed like, wow, winter is coming. It's getting cold. This isn't really working out very well. I like this job, but I have I work 10 hours a week and they can't get more hours. And then I had a bunch of friends from that same crew in Alaska going to Big Sky. And so I just kind of bailed on Colorado entirely and went up to Big Sky and skied there for the winter. And without having to go into all the details, it was really fun, but it definitely solidified that like I'm a climber who skis, not a skier who climbs. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I like to rock climb mostly. And so I didn't really feel like working at a place like big sky where you ski every day and that's your outdoor activity was really what was like suited to me best like it was really fun i really like learned how to ski because i basically did boot camp for two years but after that it kind of helped me realize that i liked climbing a bit more than skiing and i wanted to like make that the focus and live somewhere where i could climb and then travel to go skiing if i had to not the other way around but I guess it was that fall that I was working in Boulder that I went to S's Park for the first time and climbed on the right. J-Crack. I actually slept in my car in the parking lot outside the shack. And that's when I was like, okay, S's Park is going to be the place. Like, this is where I really want to live. That was like, I really connected with it there. So then the whole winter I was at Big Sky, kind of my goal was to get back to S's Park. And I had done like little bits of guiding and stuff. That's what let me get a job with the Colorado Mountain School. And that's how I ended up moving back to Estes Park. But really the big thing about my winter in Big Sky was that I worked 65 hours a week every week of that ski season to save up money so that I could go to Yosemite the following fall. Because I was like, okay. I'm going to go to Estes for the whole summer and then I'm going to be ready and I'm going to go to Yosemite. But you're going to be interning, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so you I was interning. Intern. I got yeah, my so SPI. so you need to save your money ahead of time. Yeah. Right. So I knew I wasn't going to make that yeah. much money when I was there. Right. So I like <laughs> right. saved a bunch of money working in the ski town which has much more money-making potential, got to Estes Park with, like, this chunk of money that I knew was going to let me, you know, take six weeks off in the fall to go to Yosemite. And so then my goal for the summer, like, I had the money. So then all I had to do all summer was feel ready from, like, a climbing standpoint, which was super motivating because I'm like, I'm going on this trip. And so every time, you know, you're trying to find a partner, you're trying to do something, like, I'm trying to go through these routes that I feel, like, very specifically are going to be the ones that are like really preparing me to go to the valley for the first time. And yeah, that's when everything kind of started to fall into place for me a little bit more. Like when I got to Estes and had those jobs, was living at the shack, I kind of felt like the pieces were starting to come together a little bit more. Like I really felt like I'd found a place, an actual community. Like I stayed there for more than one season. Like up to that point, it was like, boom, 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 boom. Like I was moving every couple of months. And once I got to Estes, like things started to slow down in a good way. Like I felt like, okay, we can just we can just be here. Like, we can just do this for a while. This seems to have everything that you need. You don't need to move every three months. And that was like a really, like, I felt like I could really exhale <laughs> in Estes for the first time after 
kind of running around trying to figure things out for a little while. Going back a little bit and um, you've got, uh, you know, you said you grew up kind of at least suburban city, um, maybe city. You went to college for, for something um, obviously different than outdoor rec. There's these parents that you have dropped into the conversation. It's it, a couple points. So what are they thinking? What's, what's sort of your family thinking in terms of your trajectory at this point? Having been like, I mean, coming from a place where, you know, these people are, you, you didn't grow up outdoorsy or everything else. And all of a sudden you're like, hey, mom, I'm living in my car behind a climbing gym in Boulder. Yeah, I, mean, I was really vague that? about that. I, <laughs> I mean, my mom was, I, <laughs> yeah, I was super vague about that where I was living thing because I think they knew that I was probably living in a car but didn't want to uh I didn't really want to admit that just because it made my mom really sad right and right. that's what I'm getting at like there's certain expectations for their daughter yeah and I um, think they were kind of one of, of like, them is not living in your car behind a climbing gym yeah and like I get that like I was the first person in my family to go to college and I can okay. imagine how my parents felt like they'd worked their asses off so that I wouldn't have to live like this, you know, and there's like this disconnect. Mm -hmm. And it was hard for me. Like there were times when I didn't want to be living like that. And I, sure, you know, like this time period living behind the climbing gym, like I was eating like crackers and samples from Whole Foods. Like it was not super positive. Like this was not the dream. This was like, mm -hmm. I don't really know what's going on. And like I, once I got this job in Big Sky, I like had to borrow money from my parents to like for gas to get there. Like I had a place to live and I had a job. I needed to put a battery in my car and I mm -hmm. needed enough gas to get to Montana. And that was kind of like a breaking point in which my parents were kind of like, you can do whatever you want, but like, we're not really gonna enable this anymore, which I super mm -hmm. understood, you know? And so once I got to Big Sky, I paid them back and I felt like, okay, <laughs> You can do whatever you want, but like you need to actually be able to do it on your own. And I think right, that was kind right. of when I had to set some goals, like had to save some money. Like obviously I would have rather worked less and skied more, but I was like, this is what I have to do. Like I cannot ever be that broke again. <laughs> right, because... right. Yeah, the 10-hour-a-week job in Boulder's seemed like kind of burdensome. <laughs> oh, yeah, I made like $9 an hour, you know? <laughs> and so you're just kind of like, okay. Right, right. Yeah, and so from like a dirtbagging standpoint, it was like pretty much all fun and games until that breaking point where mm -hmm. I was like, I can't eat this week and I need to ask for money from my parents because right. I'm not making right. enough money. And that's when I was kind of like, okay, you either need to like have a career that lets you do this or something like that because this just like isn't working. And that was definitely like the low, the moment where I was kind of like, Remembering that I had set this goal, you know, to climb El Cap in five years in college. And this was the closest moment I came to being like, I think this climbing thing might not work out for me. Mm -hmm. Like, I was definitely feeling like I'm not really good at it. I really like it. I'm obviously never going to be like a professional rock climber based on my rock climbing abilities alone. <laughs> you know, like, I was just like, what is the point? But then, you know, you'd go out and have this day of all days climbing an Eldo and just feel like, okay, <laughs> this is super cool. So, like, you just need to figure out how to make it happen. And I think for a while, that's why I got super attracted to guiding. And that's how I ended up in Estes working for the Colorado Mountain School, because it seemed like 
okay, that seems like one way. You're not going to mm-hmm. not going to be rich, but I'm not going to be nearly as broke as I was before. Yeah. And that was definitely kind of the drive towards also trying to find places where I could work a little bit because it felt like, yeah, I was never going to put my parents in that situation again where I've, mm-hmm. I mean, I pretty much was just asking for money because I'd been like dicking off for two years. Like I'd been kind of working, kind of working towards my goals, but not, you know, just like not taking things very seriously. So tell me about the first trip to Yosemite then. Oh my God. As far as steps towards your, towards your goal. Yeah. And so I was really lucky. Like I had these jobs in Estes Park that were going to let me just go to Yosemite and come back and basically said, when you get back, you'll just start working again. So I knew that like I had this chunk of money and I pretty much was just going to stay in Yosemite as long as I could. And it was like the perfect trip. So I drove out there with my friend, Sarah. We drove all through the night. We came into Tuolumne like well after dark. So we couldn't see anything. Drove all the way down to the valley. There were people sleeping in line for Camp 4, so we just, like, drove straight to Camp 4, put our sleeping bags on the ground, got in line, and then just woke up sleeping on the floor of Camp 4, you know, waiting in line for a spot. And we I spent, like, a month there climbing all the time, mostly just getting on classic free climbs, you know, climbing on Middle Cathedral, climbing Serenity Crack, like, climbing all these just, like, beautiful multi-pitch routes. I had one... It's kind of like my first half wall. Like I jugged the leaning tower behind a friend. It was it was terrible. Like I had my PDF version of Chris Max had a big wall climb, a super topo book on my phone and was totally just like, okay, like step one, attach Mars to rope. Like step two, attach Mars <laughs> to harness, you know? And we super epic, but we did it. And it was, yeah, just super inspiring. And then like I had this great group of people that I fell in with in Camp 4, and then I ended up going with them, spent a little time in Joshua Tree, went to Red Rocks, like they were all from the Front Range, and so we like slowly worked our way back uh, by Thanksgiving, uh, kind of climbing all the way, went to Indian Creek, slowly climbed kind of all the way back as one spot, you know, would get too cold, you'd like move to the next one, and then move to the next one, and then ended up back, you know, and I was like, when I have $200, I have to go back to Esses Park. And that's pretty much what I did and ended up back there for the winter. And that trip really was special. And I wasn't like big wall climbing. Like I didn't just show up ready to do those things. But I did feel really Mm. proud of doing a lot of those classic multi-pitch routes. Climb the East Buttress of El Cap, climb Snake Dyke. My first route was the Nutcracker. And it just felt like so heroic, you know. And yeah, I just was in love with it instantly. Like wasn't good at it but was in love with it and like just had an amazing time like I had no other obligations pretty Mm -hmm. much ever since I've always had some other things going on so even if I'm on a trip you know oh you're kind of working on this writing project oh you have to do this other thing I had nothing else to do and it's really one of the only times I've been able to go on a trip like that and I can't really imagine another time when I might be able to you know unless you're out of the country somewhere where you can't have cell phone service even if you want it. It was like no one was trying to get in touch with me. Like I had nothing to do. And how did you end up sort of being a denizen, if you will, of Yosemite? Kind of the turning point that allowed me to spend more time in Yosemite was that I actually started doing a little bit of gear reviewing and product like work on the website for Outdoor Gear Lab through some friends that I had, mm-hmm. you know. And 
that was all remote work. And so once I started doing that and realizing that I could do it pretty sustainably if I was living on the road, then that was like what the dream was for me at the time. And so like I got a different car that was a little more livable. I had a 97 Chevy Astro van and that I had like taken the Greyhound bus <laughs> from Boulder out to Grand Junction, bought this van, drove it back. And I had that for a while and I just started being able to do all this remote work. And that was a really cool balance for a while. Like I really liked writing. I had done a lot of writing based things in college. And so it felt like I had work that was actually more than just money making work for a while. And I got to be wherever I wanted. So then once I realized I could work remotely, I was like, well, I'm going to Yosemite because <laughs> I didn't know how else you would possibly live there. Because right. I had no idea how you would get a job there or anything like that. And so that summer, or so I should say, I went back for the fall with a group of people from Estes Park. And among that group was Quinn Brett. That's mm -hmm. the fall that she did Seven Walls in Seven Days with Josie McKee. And we all camped together and had this fantastic time. I climbed a bunch of small walls, like air quotes, small walls, like the Lost Arrow Spire, all these things in like total aid style multi-day hauling not epicking in a dangerous way but like really taking a long time you know to learn these things but did that climbed the washington column a couple of times and but at the same time was like watching josie and quinn climb and all camping together and that was this huge moment for me of realizing what it meant to be like a real yosemite climber and just getting to camp with them while they would go and set some speed record on a wall and come back in time for dinner and then wake up and do it again and then wake up and do it again. Like, I've just never, probably even since, like, seen much that inspired me the way that that did and mm -hmm. really learned a lot from them. And then from that point, like, I credit a lot of what I've been able to do in climbing to Josie and Quinn because they just super took me under their wing I climbed with Quinn in the desert some that winter, and then the next year was, like, f fully working remotely by that point and just lived in my van in El Portel outside the valley and just climbed as much as I could. And by that fall, had a lot of friends there who actually worked there, had friends on the search and rescue site, and climbed El Cap for the first time that season and then got to... Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> we can't just blow past that. That was your goal. That was my goal. <laughs> It was, yeah. and I will say, like, the, the reason that it's I'm funny. blowing wait, 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 past wait. it hold is... On, hold, hold on, hold on, Yeah, the reason you're blowing past it is because when you live in Yosemite... Oh, sorry, I'm going to put words in your mouth, but when you live in Yosemite and you watch Quinn and Josie and the mass amount of other people for whom climbing a cap is no big deal, like, it... I don't know. To me, it twists in your brain as if it's no big deal. Totally. And, That's definitely and, true. And like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, okay, well, I got to get it done, you know, and I'm going to do it in a style that like doesn't matter because of the way these people are doing it. Um, but it's a shame because it's still like a big deal to do it for your first time. No. No matter how you end up doing and it. And for sure. Yeah, and right? it felt like that when I did it. It felt like yeah. the culmination of everything that I had ever tried to do like I climbed the nose did you get sub sub five years it was yeah it was <laughs> mm -hmm. it was like just about cool. five years yeah cool awesome maybe to the month <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> awesome. Perfect. And That's so, all you need. Yeah. It was really special. <laughs> sub and two hours, sub five years. Yeah. What difference does it make? <laughs> and it was just like a perfect, classic three-day ascent of the nose. Um, awesome. Yeah. We had... With who? With my friend Sarah, who I'd gone on my first trip uh, to Yosemite okay, with. Okay, cool. And so it just felt like like it was the perfect team. Like we were perfectly paired. She's a really good crack climber. I had done a little more aid practice. And so I had, mm-hmm. you know, I had been like, I want to do the king swing. I want to do the great roof. I want to do the glowering spot. And I want to do the changing corners. Because I felt like I really needed to do the aid cruxes. to. For me, sure. that's what I needed to do. I mean, I was going to aid the stove leg cracks anyway, and Sarah could free them. So I figured we should probably do it that way. But we were just like a perfect match. Our skills were perfectly complementary. We had like long days, but it was really fun. Nothing too epic. And I felt like the thing that I was really the most proud of was that like I was ready to climb the nose when I climbed it. Like it was really hard, but it felt like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't try this last year. Because it would have been not as fun, too epic, too hard, probably would have bailed. And so it right. just was perfect. <laughs> it really was like it was, but also like I really struggled the way that I think a lot of people have spoken about before that when you reach a goal, like I'd mm. never considered past it. I'd never thought about a second thing I would climb an El Cap or like what I would possibly climb after that. And so that summer, I definitely kind of had this rut of motivation of just feeling like, oh. (laughs) And then it started, I felt like I started to kind of fall into the like, well, the next thing that one does is try to climb El Cap in a day or you try to do this other route. But it started to shift a little bit towards this is what you should do next, not like what I wanted to do next. That was a really interesting time. So that was, this is like the spring of 2017. And uh And that was like the fall of 2017, as you kind of alluded to earlier, was kind of like a really rough period of time (laughs) for climbers in my Mm -hmm. community, um, in our community. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it was really interesting to go from like meeting this amazing goal. And then that fall uh, with my friend Nick, we climbed the nose in a day. And I will say that we did mm-hmm. the hardest possible nose in a day. We climbed it in 23 hours and 59 minutes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the nose Why in the longest day. Why not just get day. the most out of it that you can? Yeah, just You're right, it's it the in. world's greatest fruit. Just yeah. like, do, do, just, yeah, get soaking the most out in. of it. Yeah. That's and awesome. Then, yeah. So wait, wait, hold on. Before we go into this. So you had climbed El Cap. Uh, you'd done the three-day ascent of the nose with your friend mm-hmm. Sarah. Was that the next time you did it? Mm-hmm. Was this one day ascent? Yeah, that was in the fall. All right, so, and, and and going back to what I said about like kind of thinking like climbing a cap is no big deal when you hang out with the with a certain crowd, mm-hmm. um, what we would call your reference group. When your reference group is is people like Quinn, um, like Josie, yeah, it seems like oh, doing like an old you know multi day ascent of the nose is is you know some sort of like drop off from what they do. But the fact that you did it once and then you did it in a day is extraordinary <laughs> well, and i would just want you to 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 sort of i, I just want to put a marker on that <laughs> because i think again looking at what those ladies do and what a lot of people who live in yosemite do it doesn't 
probably feel that extraordinary, but it is extraordinary to turn it around like that and do your second El Cap ascent as a one day ascent, even if it was one minute short of 24 hours. So um, I just, you know, I don't want the listeners to be like, <laughs> okay, whatever, because it's not whatever. It's, no, it's, it's extraordinary. Not. And it's something to be, you know, definitely proud of in terms of your, of your arc as a climber. Yeah. And I was so proud of that. And I know that like, good, good. I felt like a lot of people were not giving me a hard time, but like in a good natured way, you know, about this like longest mm-hmm. possible nose in a day. But to me, it was just like, it was like the, one of the best days I've ever had. Like, I felt like Nick and I knew enough to not get ourselves killed or injured. And we would just be like, it's so nice right. out here that like the worst thing that could likely happen not happen ever, but likely is to happen is that we just like spend a really long time up there. <laughs> right. And we're hungry and a little cold and a little thirsty. But like we can probably just do it. Even if it takes yeah. thirty six hours. Like we brought one rope and sure. our goal was just like, oh, we're just gonna go climb it and see what happens. And climb till you get to the top. Yeah, we're just gonna go to the top. And if we had had two ropes, we probably would have wrapped <laughs> But like nothing went wrong, <laughs> right? So like they also, you know, you That's also the Kelly Cordis method of like, <laughs> oh, you know, get sure. so stuck that you have to keep going. Yeah, we bailing <laughs> up for sure, and you're just like exactly. Well, I think we could probably do this, and it was just one of the funnest days I've ever had. I mean, in terms of effort that I put into that day, it's got to be one of my like most heroic moments ever. Like I've done things that are probably on paper way cooler since then, but this is in my mind like. The coolest sure. thing that I've done. <laughs> yeah, hold on to that because it's it's what's important. You know, the, going to Estes Park, like one of the biggest efforts I ever made was climbing the damn Northcutt Carter on on Hallett, mm-hmm. which has fallen down. But back then it was a five seven, you know. But we did it so early in our careers, and it rained, and we just kept climbing. And like, I still think of it as like this this crucible where I kind of crossed over into an alpine climber, even though you know, subsequently I free soloed it. So it's like, but it's still this moment where I was like digging super, super deep, you know? Yeah. And I feel like all you can ever really do is judge your own accomplishments or climbing based on your abilities. Like if you're trying the hardest that you've ever tried, then that's like the coolest thing you've probably ever done. (laughs) Like it's not. Yeah, exactly. It's just, I don't know. I've always really felt that way. Like I'm such a moderate climber that when I have these moments where I feel like I've actually been forced to like try that hard then you're like wow mm-hmm. i feel like a total boss <laughs> even though yeah you know there's people who could have climbed the nose five times or six times in this amount of time you're like no i am the person who's having the most fun on el cap right now yeah except for you're not because it's hour 23 yeah <laughs> <laughs> but then afterwards you you were having fun but yeah but yeah i mean it's you can't live in this comparison world especially when you're living in Yosemite the way you were. Yeah, it's kind of a key to being in Yosemite. These, these people. Yeah. Yeah, you got to keep it in perspective, you know. So, But let, let's, you know, if you're willing to go there, let's talk about 2017. Um, it was a hard time for for Carbondale. And um, part of it was, was you know, this the, what happened to Quinn. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk a little bit about that, this mentor of, of, of yours. Yeah, and so that's, I mean, it's all just so connected, right? And Quinn and Jesse have talked a lot about mm-hmm. this since, but so I was staying in the valley at my uh, boyfriend at the time, now my husband's house, Bud, he's a climbing ranger in the valley and, or was at the time with 
you know, he worked on the search and rescue team with Josie, their best buds, Quinn's out climbing, Libby's there, like, we're all hanging out, it's a super fun time, and, um, so, to back up, three days before Quinn's accident, which I'm sure a lot of people who are listening know about, um, the three of us actually climbed the triple direct in a day, which is, you know, the first bit of the Salathe, you climb the free blast, then you climb the middle thousand feet of the mirror wall, and then you traverse over into the nose, right under the great roof, and climb the nose to the top. And Josie had had this vision of doing a all-female one-day triple direct, because as far as we'd known, that probably hadn't been done before. Really, at that point, we could probably mostly name, if not have a pretty good estimate of, like, women who had climbed El Cap in one day on all-female teams. I mean, mm-hmm. I was, like, not really up to this, right? Like, this was a couple weeks after my 24-hour Nyad. So, like, that's where I was at as a climber. But, like, Josie and Quinn brought me in on this mission on this, like, you know, like, this is a mentorship mission. Like, they could have climbed so much faster without me. And it was just so meaningful to me, you know. Like, Josie and I had talked about it previously. We'd actually tried it that summer, bailed because it was August. And, like, that's a terrible time. <laughs> To try to climb El Cap, and especially in a day with very little water. And so, I mean, I just really respected that. I kind of, like, assumed that when Quinn showed up that Josie would go with her because this was, had been her goal. And she had kind of been like, but we talked about this and, like, I'm not going to do this without you because we said that we would do it. So we went as a team of three. And, I mean, I led, like, a couple of pitches. But that's when you're, like, you're watching the masters, you know? Like, I'd gone from getting mm-hmm. to camp with them and watching them go off and climb the thing and come back to, like, being up there with them. I mean, especially having been in Estes Park, like, looking up to Quinn all this time and then actually getting to be up there with them. It was a magical day. We had so much fun. And so we come down, and the next day um, we learned that Hayden and Inga had died. And I had met Hayden very briefly, you know, in the front range. Josie and Quinn and Libby and the people that we were staying with knew him more. And so then, and then the next day is kind of when we got more news about what had happened. And everyone in our whole Estes Park community had felt real, or in our uh, Yosemite community, I should say, was really just shaken. I mean, whether you knew those guys really well or you didn't and you looked up to them like I think everyone was kind of following this news as people were learning more and um I remember being yeah kind of surprised when the next day Quinn and Josie were going to go climb the nose but that's who they are (laughs) they're people who love climbing and who feel like well when things are great you go climbing when things suck you go climbing like this is the thing that we do because it's the thing that we love to do and so I knew that they were up there and I, of course, was resting <laughs> because I just had like the hardest day of my life basically jugging behind mm-hmm. them. Like I was going to be out for two weeks from like an effort like that. So they're up there again. And yeah, I remember I was driving back to my boyfriend's house and he called me and I thought he was at work. They had had a rescue training that day. And so he called me and I was surprised and he just said, where are you? I was like, well, I'm on my way back to your house. And he's like, you need to come here right now. I was like, well, yeah, I just said I was on my way there. And he just hung up the phone. And as I, at this time, there was all this traffic in Yosemite. So I had to 
circle through El Cap Meadow to go back to the village, right? Like I was coming from mm. one side of the valley, but it's a one-way loop. So you have to go down to El Cap Meadow and come back. And I circled through El Cap Meadow and I saw the search and rescue and I saw all the people in the yellow shirts. And I wasn't part of SAR yet, but Bud was and was, I kind of had a sense that something was going on. And then I like started to get really nervous. <laughs> and yeah, when I got to Bud's house, he basically just said that there had been an accident and Quinn had taken a big fall and Josie was okay and we needed to get our stuff and we needed to go down to El Cap Meadow. And he had right. actually pulled off from that rescue um, in a lot of ways because feeling a little too close mm -hmm. to Josie and Quinn and not knowing if that was like a very good idea, you know, if he was going to be able to make really good decisions in an environment like that when there sure. was very little information. And so we got some of our stuff together and I said, oh, you know, Quinn gave me her keys in case we had to move her car while she was gone for the day. So like maybe I should just like I'll be able to just get her stuff and I can meet her at the hospital. And there was like a moment in the car when Bud was just kind of like, I don't know if we're going to go to the hospital. <laughs> right. And that's when the kind of enormity of the situation kind of hit me, which felt so crazy because we had just been up there together <laughs> doing exactly right. the same shit. I mean, not exactly the same because you don't climb El Cap in a team of three in 16 hours the way that Josie and Quinn climb the nose in half as much time. Like, the tactics aren't exactly the same, but, like, you're mm. playing all the same games. And so sure. we go down there, and I, I don't know, it just felt so slow. Now, having worked in search and rescue and having been involved in climber fatalities and been involved in El Cap rescue, you realize that when you're in it, it feels like things are happening really fast. <laughs> but when you're watching, it feels like things are happening really slowly. It feels like no one's doing anything, which is obviously not mm -hmm. the case. So maybe I don't need to go into like all of the details of the day. But like I do remember coming to a moment in which I saw Tom Evans and he said, whoever that was did not survive that fall. And I said, well, it's Quinn. Mm -hmm. And I remember him like gasping and having this moment. And then very quickly after that hearing someone running over to me to tell me that Quinn was awake and that she was talking and everyone kind of taking this breath. And um, yeah, and I remember like whatever, Quinn finally gets to the ground. They've done this like heroic helicopter rescue. And um, I remember like Bud is always talking about how, you know, Quinn saw him, recognized him and said, but don't put me in the helicopter. I don't have good health insurance. And he was kind of like, that's when I knew that, like, this was going to be okay in, like, the grandest scheme of things. Because there's, like, a lot going on in saying something like that, that you're kind of like, okay, we have something to work with here. Right. You're thinking about the future, even if it's, you know, right. you're like, worried about Right. Like, you recognize yeah, your friends. Not, yeah. You have an idea right. of where you are. You have an idea of what's happened to you. Like, these mm -hmm. are the things they mm -hmm. ask you to ask people about <laughs> when you're right. responding to someone who's, like, been in a terrible accident. And so the weeks just unfolded, and I spent a lot of time, you know, going out to the hospital before Quinn got to go back to Colorado and... It was just such an interesting year for me because 
I had gone in like a matter of a couple of months from like my ultimate goal that had been driving me to go climbing since day one to, I don't think I want to do this, (laughs) highest of highs to lowest of lows, right? Right. Let me, let me stop there for a second. So I, I mean, we don't have to relive the day. Um, Quinn's been on the show Mm -hmm. and there's this thing that I kind of want to get to in that is that you is, is how it did affect you. You know, it's affected a lot of people in the climbing community in different ways and still reverberates, you know, here in Carbondale, we, we worry most about, we think about Hayden quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, but the two things are, you know, connected just by date being so close together. But I mean, even Quinn has mentioned, you know, there's sort of a more deeper connection between the two things. But what about you? I mean, you, you, you're, you're having to examine sort of this thing. I mean, climbing the nose, climbing in a day and then setting some, some type of record on the triple direct is this like fireball trajectory for a climber. And it had to do a lot of, a lot of ways with association, but you know, you put yourself into this position to be someone for whom these two very experienced women weren't afraid to ask you to come along on something like that. And that says a lot about who you are, but what did this do to you as a climber? And this wasn't the end of the tragedy either, actually. And it's sort of like, I feel like you had this kind of like golden glow experience with climbing for the longest time. And then you know, you got like a, a career's worth of tragedy piled on around you in a matter of months. Yeah. Um, so talk about that. But 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 you ended up on SAR later anyway, which I want to get to. So it definitely was really interesting. I mean, I had already bought non-refundable round trip plane tickets to go down to Patagonia that winter. And that was kind of the last thing I wanted to do then. But I figured well, I'm sure it's like a beautiful place to go hiking. Like, we'll at least go check it out. But yeah, like I didn't want to go rock climbing. I didn't want to really have anything to do with it. But I think the thing that stuck with me the most was I was there in El Capmeno. And most of my friends were involved in this rescue in some way. And I was not. And it felt terrible. (laughs) Like I felt totally helpless. When you're a Yosemite climber, it's easy to think about maybe one day getting involved in search and rescue with just the the stories and the lore and the lifestyle, but what really made me want to be on SAR was being there and being unable to do anything <laughs> and feeling like, well, I should be able to do something. I want to learn how to do things so that if I'm ever in a situation like this again, I'll be on that side. I'll be doing something. Right. And right. and so that kind of drove my application and I ended up getting a spot on the team in the Valley following summer which had a lot of climber accidents that year as well. Um, And I definitely feel like for our whole community, there was a lot of settling down and reevaluating and thinking about motivations. And for me, it's just made me think about my motivations a lot. And there's definitely times when Mm -hmm. I don't want to go climbing and I don't make myself go climbing and I take a break and I do other things and I have lots of other hobbies and activities. And then when I want to go climbing, I just go. And it's, I mean, yeah, there's very few days when I don't think about it, but also it doesn't keep me from climbing, but I definitely view it in a different way. I mean, I feel like I probably was in some way probably barreling towards my own disaster. Like you said, like it was kind of one thing after another. And 
I was accomplishing things and nothing was really in my way and I was having very few moments of reflection and it was just like, yeah, like you said, like I climbed El Cap, I climbed El Cap in a day, I climbed El Cap in a day kind of fast with Josie and Quinn on this first female thing, you know, and I don't really know what would have, what I would have kept doing, but like I definitely felt pretty invincible in that moment, (laughs) you know, like I'd been involved in very few accidents i'd never really been hurt it just kind of seemed like everything was awesome and you just kept going and then especially you know neils died that year as well and i didn't know neils personally but my whole community did and it just was this huge reckoning for the yosemite community at that time of hmm (laughs) why do we do these things, right? Like all these right, right. big moments are really different in the details, but also each one individually would probably get most people reevaluating a lot of their decision-making and mm-hmm. whys and motivations and things like that. And so to have all those things stacked on top of each other was really difficult, though I definitely feel like it bonded me to my community, you know, and to my people and to, yeah, just being able more and more to go back to, why climb? Why do things like this? Why put yourself in those types of situations? And I don't feel like I really have answers to that, but I definitely feel like it kind of comes and goes in waves. And I mean, the biggest thing, though, was that I wanted to be able to do something. I felt terrible being there with no skills, no ability to help. Your friends are in, you know, a terrible accident and you're just watching. Like, I just watched. (laughs) And that I didn't like that feeling. And, um, you know, as someone who kind of goes all in on things, like that was the moment in which I was like, I need to learn how to do stuff. I can't. Right. Right. Like so much of the way that that day went the way it did is because Josie is so skilled and um, has put in so much time to developing a skill set in which when the worst things happen, she's prepared. And so I felt like I need to be prepared. (laughs) I'm putting myself in those situations. But if I was there, if I had been climbing with Quinn and not Josie, who knows what would have happened? Like, this is how I was feeling at the time. I don't have any of those skill sets, you know? And so I felt like it really motivated me to want to learn more and more and more and more. And then also just help other people and help other climbers because I hadn't been able, I wasn't in a position to help this time. And I didn't want to feel like that again, like just a spectator. Can I ask you a couple of questions about SAR? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it is fun. You, sometimes. you mentioned, <laughs> right. Well, and that it's funny because you mentioned the mythology, you, you know, the, the sort of like legend that goes with the search and rescue team. I mean, you know, going back to like the, you know, the golden age, the, the Valley uprising days, you know, it was this place where the best climbers sort of found a way to stay in the Valley. And that's kind of like the glow that's around it. Like, you know, uh, Bridwell was a SAR guy and, um, you know, uh, Werner Braun, you know, still is, I think, right? (laughs) He's there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in, but, but there's always this thing that makes my brain kind of go back to like, it's still this thing where you guys are put into extremely traumatic situations on a pretty regular basis, you know, and there's been a lot of gallows humor that's gone with the stories over the years. It's easy to kind of just like almost make fun of it. And all these stories about bodies and things and and the base jumpers and all these different 
different things. But I always go back to like, wow, that's super traumatic. And how is it that the the sort of cognitive dissonance between this thing that you love, right? Rock climbing, and it's these golden days on Yosemite or on El Cap and the best day ever. And and yet here are like these other days where it's the most tragic, horrible thing you've ever been involved in. With your experience, like how do you sort of square those two things? And is that a conversation among the people on SAR? Is there is there sort of support for, you know, this this like meeting of the worlds that clash together? Greatest day ever, most horrible day ever. Totally. Um on a, on maybe a regular basis. Yeah. And so to answer the second part of that first, I will say that things have changed mm-hmm. quite a bit, I think. Still a lot of gallows humor, still a lot of trauma, but a lot more support. So since I've worked okay. there, we've started working with Laura McGladry, who's also involved in the Climbing Grief Fund with, with the American Alpine Club. And okay. we're doing, I feel yeah, like we're kind of her guinea pigs in a lot of ways for practicing, you know, and being an example, I should say, of what it looks like to be a volunteer search and rescue team, because we still are. Like You're not an employee sure. of the National Park Service. So it is like a lot of her work, you know, involves working with law enforcement and firefighters and things like that, which is similar, but really different. And search and rescue teams are often volunteers. And so the my understanding is that the resources provided are often really lacking in those environments. And um, I will say mm-hmm. that one thing that the search and rescue team in Yosemite has that most other counties search and rescue teams don't have is that we live together. And that's always been a huge part of it. You go have the worst day ever okay. at work and you come home together. And you make dinner together and you drink some beer or whiskey together and you talk about it together. There's no having this terrible day and then having to go home to people who say, oh, how was your day? And you're like, what do you mean? How was my day? I just saw the worst thing a human could possibly be asked to see. Right. Like that community is so built in that I feel like, you know, even when it was just whiskey drinking and gallows humor and there was no actual counseling or actual anything that looked like resources, like that's a resource. The community is a resource. And I think that most people who have been on search and rescue in Yosemite will know that that's or would agree that that's like a, a been a huge part of actually being able to deal with it in a way that doesn't exist for people. You know, you work on a county search and rescue team and you go pick up a climber out of the flat irons or something and you have to just go home <laughs> like that sounds like right. the worst thing that i could really think of right yeah. is walking around like it feels like this sometimes in yosemite after the worst day that you are walking around and you're watching all these people on vacation or like the cashier at the grocery store says like how's your day going and you're just like fine you know because like there's no way you feel right. like you are in a world and no one else is in your world except that you live with these eight other people who are in your world and who do get it. And that's a huge part of it, I think. That's really uh, astute, actually. And I'd never really thought of that. But, I mean, that's documented in combat situations and, and all over the world. Um, it's super important. And, you know, it, it's always just concerned me that there's this idea of like, oh, I've got this opportunity where I can live in Yosemite. I'll join the SAR team. I got these skills and, you know, I get a tent cabin. And then all of a sudden, you know, being confronted with what it really means it's always kind of worried yeah me. i mean but, within uh, my what you first just said month, makes a lot of sense yeah i mean my first month there there was a double fatality on el cap mm-hmm. and yeah but i do feel like that community aspect of it is the thing that keeps people right 
going that keeps people coming back year after year you'd have people just quitting in may you know if they didn't have that and i will say that things are different Mm -hmm. now like the i mean not to get into the nitty-gritty of like nps policy but things are definitely changing and evolving in terms of like who is involved in what operation of the fatalities in terms of like what law enforcement is supposed to do and what the SAR team is being asked to do. And it's like definitely at least in the last 10 years, if not just five years, the policies have changed a lot so that it's, yeah, that you still have to do some like terrible things and see some terrible things. But then to get back to the first part of your question, for me, I feel quite Mm -hmm. lucky that even though I've seen and been involved in some pretty terrible things, I've always been able to leave those days feeling like my team and I personally and the larger rescue operation did the best that we could. I've never mm-hmm. luckily been in a situation in which I feel like someone died because we didn't do something fast enough or well enough or we made a mistake. Sure. And I feel like that's been one of the things that I've relied on internally, you know, is that um, is trying to separate the difference between, say, this climber died of a traumatic brain injury and I was there. It's not because we didn't do the very best thing we could possibly do or someone has died before you get there. And then your job is to make sure that they get delivered to their family and to their loved ones. And like, that's your job now. Mm -hmm. And I've always like, we've usually been able to accomplish that. And shifting the goal i think is really helpful you know and that like sometimes your goal is not (laughs) to save someone which sounds kind of strange but there's a lot of things that are out of your control Uh, people have heart attacks people hit their head and there's nothing that you can do about it even you know sometimes you're in situations in which you're like to be honest if this person was in a hospital they probably still would have died And so when you can kind of try to bring that objectivity to it, which is obviously very difficult, I just feel lucky that I've never been in a situation in which I feel like anything could have been different or the outcome would have changed if we had done anything differently. Obviously, there's Mm. room to learn and to change practices and to do different things, but I've never been in a situation in which I felt like the outcome would have actually been any different if we had done something differently. And I feel like that's allowed me to do that for three seasons but i also feel like one of the reasons i'm not going to do that anymore is because i'd like to bow out before i get to the point where i can't go on that trail because i saw that thing there or like i can't climb at that crag because i saw that thing there that a lot of people on yosemite search and rescue have gotten to before yeah it's just like i said there's the mythology and the you know the sar team kind of like legend and then i just always slip to the reality of it of like wow i, I you know as a, as a personal climber, I have not, I've dealt with traumatic injury. I've dealt with broken bones, um, but I haven't dealt with the death and I've been lucky. I mean, 30 some years, not, not that my, you know, friends and, and, and colleagues and climbers I know haven't died, but I haven't been mm-hmm. there. And, uh, yeah. So I just think about that a lot, actually, when even back when in the day, I mean, I used to come into Yosemite and have friends in SAR and I'd, you know, crash outside their tent cabin or whatever get that pass mm-hmm. you know that awesome free pass of like you know a sar person and so like leave me alone ranger kind of a thing but it was always on my mind and and you know the year last time i was in yosemite was um just before the 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 speed climbing double fatality mm-hmm. and it just yeah just like i just can't imagine what it's like and so i'm, I'm glad that you put it in perspective for us 
um, because it's it's not just fun and games what you do on the SAR team, you know. No, it's and not I will, just parties and drinking over in the tent cabins, you know. Totally. And I will say that like if if it was fatalities every week, I think it'd be a very different job. Like Sure, sure. You know, I worked there for three summers, six months a year. I averaged about thirty five incidents a year. And of those whatever, close to a hundred incidents I've responded to, maybe five some five to eight something like that fatalities so like it is not the bulk of what you're doing right sure and so like if it was every week it'd be really different but most of the time you save people (laughs) okay but sure but i mean once again going back to this kind of reference group like what's normal thing like most people in their normal lives they don't deal with fatalities until their parents pass away or a relative or you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, my, yeah, my perspective I mean, is totally I, I, messed I, I, up I agree. <laughs> I understand you want to like, you want to like change it, but man, you know, five or eight, dealing with five or eight fatalities in three years <laughs> is not like normal existence. Sorry. <laughs> but anyway, but thanks so much. And, and, and I mean, I, I, I've sort of pushed you into that zone and I, ho- I hope um, it didn't upset you, but I just, I've always been curious about it and dealing with death and climbing is, you know, at my age, 30 years into the game it's just uh it's just part of the landscape unfortunately um and it seemed like again it sort of welled up in your life uh a little bit quickly and and kind of heavy um all at the same time yeah i think that's true but i also think that it's just just a thing that in climbing and sometimes i Mm -hmm. feel in life yeah just in life nobody gets out alive everybody dies yeah everyone and so sometimes i feel like i have a if anything good comes out of anything that I feel like I have this perspective and I feel like it's really influenced the way that I climb and the reasons why I climb and the motivations for climbing and like having that introspection and not that I wish that this on anyone, you know, but at the same time, I never get to forget that like you could die climbing and it's probably good (laughs) that you don't forget that you could die climbing because if you don't know, you know, if you haven't been exposed to that, sometimes like I hadn't, sometimes it feels like it's not a thing that could happen to you. And it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I, and to put it, you know, to, to be climbing with those, you know, those women, they have superpowers um, would have been a perspective that, yeah, it gave, gave you this idea that this is all, you know, well within hand, mm-hmm. you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, the, the very starkest example was given to you in that sense. Um, but let's move on uh, and finish up because we've been, <laughs> we've been here forever. This is awesome. So you, you, you've married the, uh, the the Yosemite Ranger mm-hmm. that I'm sure you grew closer to during that rescue, and you're living this life in the East Side, so far removed from that kid in North Carolina. <laughs> you're right, totally. But 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 at the end of this this goal, right? This this kind of like path you you very consciously put yourself on. So what does your climbing look like now um, that you've been through these things that uh, in a lot of ways. Um, shook the foundation of what you understood about climbing when you uh, when you started. Yeah, yeah. So I live in Bishop now. I love the East Side. Still close to Yosemite. Love that you could pretty much climb in Bishop any day of the year <laughs> if you mm-hmm. tweak the elevation a little bit. Like you could find something that's always in, and I just love it here. And for me, really, this winter climbing looks like mostly on paper. So I've been working on a book. That's being published my Mountaineers books, which is an anthology of stories about the history of women climbing in Yosemite, 
Um, it's huge. <laughs> it's pretty much my, I climb very little and read and write about climbing a lot right now. So I'm looking forward to turning that in and getting to actually go climbing and not just talk about it all the time. But yeah, so that's kind of my big thing. I mean, I just, as a climber, I really like moderate climbing. I really like classic climbing. I like being a little bit scared, but not too scared. I love scrambling in the high Sierra. Um, but yeah, I mean, the big thing that I've been working on is this book, and it feels like such a nice way. You mentioned, like, feeling really removed from the kid in North Carolina who, like, dreamed of going to Yosemite one day. And now it just feels so cool to me. Like, I connected through to the climbing community through reading about climbing, right? And when I got to Yosemite, I felt like, huh, I don't actually feel like that literature is very representative of what I'm seeing with my own eyes. And I felt like, that's bullshit. <laughs> Basically, you know, and I was like, someone should do something about that. And like, we're especially search and rescue. You're hearing stories about Mary Braun. You're hearing stories about Joe Whitford and these characters who are just slaying and you've never heard of them. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, well, that's ridiculous. And so I eventually like put together a book proposal and it's kind of weird to put a proposal together to make an anthology, right? Because you're like going to be relying on a lot of people and you haven't really asked them yet if they think this is a good idea. But I feel really lucky because a lot of people have supported me and told me, no, we think this is a pretty good idea. And so in about a year, we'll be coming out with like a... It's a great idea. Maybe 300 page. It's like 78,000 words, whatever that's going to look like. 35-ish stories from the 30s through the present day that just talk about women climbing it's not it's not super political right like it's not these are my experiences that i had because i'm a woman because that's not how most of the people in the book feel they feel like i'm a climber and i felt like well mm -hmm. people have been ignoring your story and whether you realized it or not and we should put them all together so that other people can read them so now that girls in north carolina can read them and say well i can do that because you look like me because i see you there and Right. Like there's still huge gaps in the representation. And that's something that I recognize, you know, and that the book kind of deals with. But at the same time, like now there are 35 stories about badass women who climbed this or that or the other thing or had really meaningful experiences in Yosemite that kind of run this whole spectrum of experiences that just say, here, we're talking about climbing. Because that's right. that's how men talk about climbing. They just say, I had this great experience and I'm going to write about it. And women often say, yeah, but why would I talk about myself in that way? And I feel like right. because these stories matter to people, they help. You know, this, you know, two thirds of American women can't name an outdoor female role model. And so now you have 35 of them, you know, whose stories have largely not been told before right there's definitely stories from like your kind of big name yosemite climbers and i would say that like at least two-thirds of the women in the book even the average recreational climbers probably not heard of maybe mm -hmm. even average recreational yosemite climber and so that i'm really excited right. about and um has kind of been all consuming for a while but super super excited about it well, awesome. Well, thanks. I think we did 78,000 words here uh, tonight, and I, I fully appreciate it. It's been a fascinating and really fun interview to talk to you, and I'm, I'm so glad you agreed to do it. I mean, this project sounds awesome because, you know, even those couple names you mentioned, I, I right away I was like, yeah, no one does talk about them, but we used to. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and, and, you know, like Joe Whitford was, was definitely on our minds 20 years ago, 30 years ago when Yosemite climbing was happening in that era. But then they're sort of lost to history in a way. Yeah, and so um, I should say that so, a lot yeah, of these, I, I appreciate a lot that. of the stories have been told, right? They've been told to friends, mm-hmm. they've been told around campfires, they've been told sure. to family and lore and things like that. But then they get lost. And my goal is to just take some favorite stories, right? These aren't like the definitive thirty-five women's experiences. These are some stories that are right, some right, women's right, experiences. Right. But like, here's more of them than have ever been written down before. And so, totally. No, I think it's an it's an awesome and noble quest uh, to put their names back into uh, into the ether, as it were. So awesome! I appreciate it. I'm so glad you gave us so much of your time. <laughs> Let's talk again when this book yeah, comes out. Yeah, obviously, we're excited to talk to you about it. Thanks so much for having me. All right, folks. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Lauren for doing that. I just came swooping out of nowhere and was like, do an interview with me, please. And she was like, sure, what the hell? But a lot of fun, right? Cool as hell. I'm glad she's a climber. I'm glad she stuck with it. Didn't just turn into a ski bum. Also stoked on this book she's working on. So you can follow her progress on that on Instagram. Lauren Delane Miller is her Instagram. And let me tell you, just go for the grin. You need to pick me up? Head over there for the grin. You'll get what I mean when you get there. Also, you can follow her progress with the book at laurendelane.squarespace.com, but uh, it's hard to find her by just Googling. If you can't figure it out, I'll link this all on the Enormacast post so you can go find Lauren and get on board. All right, everybody. Have a good time out there. Spring break. Be careful. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere and you don't ice climb, then you're probably going to dust off your rock climbing skills coming up here, so be careful. Refresh. Review. Don't be embarrassed the first time you tie that knot, you can't figure it out. It's okay. Just take your time. And of course, look at your partner and say, hey, can you check my knot? I told my pap and mam I was coming to the mountains to trap and be a mountain man. <laughs> Acted like they was gut shot. Says, son, make your life go here. Here's where the peoples is. Them mountains is for animals and savages. Uh, I said, Mother Q, the Rocky Mountains is the marrow of the world. And by God, I was right.